You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria. My name is Diana. I would like to invite you to grab your Bibles or open your Bible apps, please. Today we will be continuing in our series called Witness, an exploration of the book of Acts. Out of respect of God's inspired word to us this morning, I would like to invite you to stand, please, if you are able. So we're reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 23. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in a synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, oh, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about <coughs> and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then <coughs> stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant in the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The word of God. You can Thanks be seated. Let's pray together, and then we'll step into God's Word. Jesus, we come here with many different backgrounds, many different understandings, many different hurts. And so it's my prayer that as we, we center around your Word, we center in your community right now, Lord, make your Word our rule. Make your Spirit our teacher. And may your glory be our supreme concern this morning. For the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There was a news article in the Chicago Tribune back in 2006 that told the story of a, of a mother in the town of, of Moline in, in eastern Illinois uh, whose son was attending Illinois State University, and she missed him so much while she was away that she had a life-sized picture of him made. We've got a shot of it. That is not him. That is a life-size cutout because she missed him so much. And the, the, the Chicago Tribune said this, uh, Dave Davila was unwittingly become quite, he has unwittingly become quite the socialite, showing up in the last month at brew pubs and pizza joints, posing in parks along the Mississippi River, even appearing with family members in the pages of the local paper. It's a neat trick, given that he lives 150 miles east in Chicago and hasn't been to his hometown since May. 
Real Dave, now known as 3D Dave or Thick Dave, which I don't know that that's a great nickname. He probably doesn't feel too good about that. Uh, he is the only one of Alice and Jesus's, Jesus Davila's uh, four kids to move away from East Moline. Fed up with the, his absence, his mom decided to create a proxy. She took a digital photo of the 24-year-old in which he was standing casually, hand in pocket, blue, uh, blue button-down shirt, hanging untucked over khaki shorts, and she blew it up to his actual height, five feet, eight inches. The photo was attached to heavy cardboard from a box that the neighbor's new stove came in, duct tape. Uh, Dave's dad chipped in some scrap wood, assembled a stand, and voila, flat Dave was born. And, and thick Dave, <laughs> three-dimensional Dave, was getting all sorts of photos and pictures and texts about all these, his buddies getting pictures of him while he was 150 miles away. We've been reflecting over the last few months throughout the series of Acts that there's, there's a tendency for us to make stand-ins for something greater. That we will often put things in our life that are really trying to answer a much larger problem. And Paul, some of us call him Apostle Paul, some of us might call him Saint Paul. He was a missionary. He critiqued the religion of the Jews for looking to tradition for their identity and for their hope. In chapter 14, a few weeks ago, the people of Lystra were convinced that Paul and his friend Barnabas were actually Zeus and, and Hermes. And so they actually used this opportunity to say, your gods are way too small. Let us tell you about the God behind everything, the God that's, that's been sustaining us all since the beginning of time. Now in Lystra, they, the people of Lystra had a very human desire. They wanted the gods to walk among them. They had a very human desire. They wanted to be seen by something bigger than themselves. They wanted to believe that somewhere the divine was paying attention to them. That something tells us something about how we were created. That's how we were built. There's a desire for God to be close, for God to make a move in our lives. And because that is built in us like a, like a missing relative, we often find a way to fill in the gap with smaller two-dimensional things. Like Dave's mom, we create stand-ins. We prop them up with cardboard and scotch tape and duct tape and, and wonder why they're not always holding together when hard weather hits. They make great pics. They make great posts for our friends online, but they don't truly fill up space. They're two-dimensional gods. And so Paul invites the people of Athens in the story. He invites uh, us to turn away, uh, turn our gods sideways and see how two-dimensional two they are. See, see what kinds of things we've been using to prop them up. See where they're weathered and worn out and how our lives are shaped around them. And maybe ask ourselves why we've believed in them at all and what kind of path that they've been taking us down. Because here's the first thing, and the first thing I want us to realize this morning, everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. Athens is a, is a hub of thought, of ideas, of gods being thrown back and forth. In verse 21, it says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I'm glad people don't do that anymore. I mean, they're just they're scrolling and reposting. 
Two of the big groups there, it says in verse 18, they were the Epicureans and the Stoics, two popular philosophies of the day. The Epicureans focused on pleasure as a means of covering up their anxiety. All, all these things that are happening down here, let's not think about those. Let's throw on pleasure of, of drinking and let's throw on pleasure of good food and video games and Netflix. They weren't saying that, but... Let's become a workaholic. Let's just do anything we can to cover over that. Do we have any Epicureans at heart here? None? Okay. People who believe all those things. That we can just hide all of our lower problems, all of our anxieties, by just filling our lives up with drink and food and video games. Then there were the Stoics. So you had the Epicureans, you had the Stoics. According to the Stoics, the ultimate guide of life is just whatever you can come up with. Just observe the world and see what you can come up with and just go along with that and live, live at one with nature. And we definitely have to have a respect for nature, that's for sure. But all we need is human reason. That's kind of our connecting point. So if we just reason enough, we will make our, our, make our way to divinity. That's how we ought to govern our lives. In other words, you, you travel towards the divine, but the divine does not come towards you. We get there with reason. So what is our philosophy of the day? What, what's the philosophy of our age? Do we, do we drown our anxiety with big and small pleasures? Or do we just kind of focus and trust our reason and just try to, just try to be good, whatever good is? And we can just define that for ourselves. Now, if we want to see what we believe about God or whether we believe there is a God, what we believe or what we worship in our lives, we just look at the way we live. We look at what keeps us up at night. We leave it where we look at what spends, where we spend our time. American novelist and, and staunch atheist David Foster Wallace in what's become a very famous quote and one, if you've been here for a while, it's actually one I've used before, but he hits this so well. He says this, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Ouch. Every time you look in the mirror, you see this, this God is fading. This God is getting weathered. And the problem is, as John Calvin wrote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're always coming up with something new to, to delve our lives into, to build our lives on. And, and it's important we figure out what that is uh, because these will guide us to answering the most important questions that we're faced with in life. Things like, why am I here? How should I live? What is right? What is wrong? Where should I invest my life? And we can't answer these questions unless we answer the more fundamental question of which story do we find ourselves in? What is going to lead us? Because here's the thing, not all gods are created equal. In fact, not all gods are created there's one who created all things, as Paul explains. All things by his word and sustains them. See, the ancient gods, as they were understood, they needed humanity. The ancient gods, it was a reciprocal relationship. They created humanity so humanity could then take care of them. 
Um, it, was, it was what uh, one Near East expert, ancient Near East expert, calls the great symbiosis. They were in this relationship where the gods would take care of humanity if humanity would then take care of them by bringing them um, offerings, by, by devoting their lives to prayer to them. And the gods could not exist unless those things were going on. So humanity was created out of necessity for the gods of Greece and Rome, created to be the servants of the gods, to take care of their needs. But like modern gods, like modern ideologies, humanity may have created them, but we end up serving the very things that we created. And there's always concern. You see this in Athens. There's always concern. If you're running after all these things and trying to bank your life in all these different things, it seems there's, there's this kind of religious FOMO. <laughs> like we're going to miss something. We got to make sure we hit everything. I'm going to try this kind of life. I'm going to try this ism. I'm going to try this ology. And I'm going to try to find meaning in them. In verses 22 and 23, Paul says, he stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, could we not walk into the mall and say to the people in the mall as they walk into the gap and as they walk wherever, and say, I see that you are very religious. They probably won't like it, but we could say it. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Even the people of Athens have this anxiety that they're going to they're miss something. They're going to bank on all these gods, but there's going to be one that they miss. There's an anxiety attached to creating meaning for ourselves. We're, we're always afraid we're going to miss something. We're going to get it wrong. There's a fear of being cut off from the divine or a, a larger purpose for our lives. Of knowing how to live, which story to live in. Well, today we would obviously say, well, there's no, there's no statues to Zeus. There's no statues to Hermes or, or Artemis or anything like that. Today, ultimately, we, we hope that we, we can feed some of those same desires, the same, same needs we have. The history of humanity has different philosophies and a lot of isms. We've tried a lot of isms throughout human history. So I just want to take a Look at two isms that are pretty popular today. The last century saw the rise of nihilism or secularism, often connected to the philosophers of the Enlightenment, who basically say, we don't need God anymore. We figured it out. We know how to live morally. We can do it on our own. Like the Stoics, it was just, all we need is our reason to get us there. Meaning there's nothing out there. There's no fate but what we make. So live liberated from the shackles of God and of, of Christianity and, and of re religion and just kind of just know that you're cut off from anything bigger and just live your life. Not sure they fully thought about what the consequences of that would be, what that would look like. Interestingly, it was German atheist and nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Try just spelling that last name on your own without looking it up. It's not easy. Friedrich Nietzsche, who pointed out the very danger inherent in that kind of liberty. Now that we've tossed all these shackles off, do we actually realize what we've done? In his book called The Gay Science, he, he tells, that word used to mean something different back then, he tells what has been titled the parable of the madman. And the madman, in this case, goes, goes running into a village, the village representing Europe on the, on the brink of going into the 20th century, which, of course, would be the bloodiest century in human history. 
says, one morning the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? For those of you who know the book of Job, this, is, this echoes a lot of what God asks Job. What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? And that's the verdict of a world disconnected from God, from a larger story, drifting without gravity and without a center. Now we've come up with the good life, identity, morality, based on what? On preference. Whatever, whoever screams the loudest. No outside guidance. No, 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 no wonder anxiety is, is such a part of what it means to be human. No, no wonder anxiety is at an all-time high. It's the result of, of a secularism that is unhinged from its son. Well, we'll just go with moralism. That's a good ism. Let's just live right. It's easy. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll just all live right. So we'll just try to live good lives. And I, I don't need a God or religion to teach me how to live. Well, Jonathan Haidt, again, not a person of faith. He's, he's secular. But he's very sober in his critique of a world without a center. In his book, Righteous Minds, Why People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, he confronts this question. How can logical, moral people so strongly disagree? And he concludes that it comes down to all we can come up with is intuition. How, do, how does it make you feel? Which is frightening. Go on to your social media today. It'll be based on all, all on how, how do you feel. And there seems to be a lot of disagreement. We look in the arena of social media and politics. You just, just, let's just all try to be good. I'm trying. Still not making people happy. He says this, this is the problem. We are indeed selfish hypocrites, so skilled at putting on a, a show of virtue that we fool even ourselves. Jeremiah said the same thing in 17, Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? That means not just their heart, my heart too. I'm going to quickly judge someone else's heart. I haven't even figured this thing out yet. It's probably a little easier just to try to deal with someone else's. The minute I get the two by four out of my eye, I can start taking care of everybody else. So morality is nothing more than preference. And I'll tell you, with social media, morality has become a label that just helps us associate with any group that we find. So pick your ism. Because not all isms are, are necessarily bad on their own, but when they take the, the center stage, they have no mooring. They have no foundation. Whether it be conservatism, liberalism, patriotism, Calvinism, Disneyism. Just follow your heart, man. But Paul would say this, hey, I see that you're moral. I see you're religious. I, I, I see that everywhere. I see you have many isms. I, I've checked your texts. I've seen your posts. I've seen what you write at the bottom of YouTube videos you don't like. I see your altar to morality. I see your religious FOMO that you don't want to miss out. Let me tell you where the answer to all those isms, all the isms of history, all the ideologies, all the, the cultural frustrations, the personal frustrations, where the answer to all those is found. Jesus is the unknown God you are looking for. Jesus is the unknown God you are looking for. Verses 24 to 31. 
says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead and points them towards Jesus. For the Epicurean seeking inner peace through experience, the experiences will always end. The Netflix series always comes to an end. The bottle always gets emptied. Then what? The anxiety is still there. The great vacation that we use once a year to help us deal with all the stuff we're dealing with at work, all the relationships we want to get away from, that vacation will come to an end. And if it's Cancun, people are going to stop coming up to you and asking you what you want. Whatever you choose to take care of that gnawing anxiety, it will run out. For the Stoic, hoping to reach the divine by pure reason, by, by respecting uh, nature, by just kind of getting in tune, by, by following a, a moral cause, hoping to gain your creator's eye. The, Paul would say the works have already been done. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and through Christ he has pursued you. What both of you are seeking is found in the God who has already been sustaining you all this time. Your own philosopher calls out. I, lo I love this because Paul actually quotes two. Uh, he quotes an Epicurean and a Stoic philosopher here. He, he quotes um, Epimenides. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. In who? That's the question that that poet wants us to ask. He quotes the Stoic poet, Aratus. We are his offspring. He takes the words of their very own poets and he points out their hunger and their desire for something less. Something for, he points out the two-dimensionality of all that they follow and all that they serve. There's something beyond your poetry. Your poetry's calling out for something bigger. I wonder what Paul would say today if he came in and he looked at the poets of the day, the philosophers of the day. He might go to Taylor Swift and say, you should not be left to your own devices. Because they come with prices and vices. You end up in crisis. And you wake up screaming from dreaming. You don't need to be in that state. He hears your covert narcissism disguised as altruism. He sees through it. It's not hidden. He can make it so you can look at yourself in the mirror again. So that your sin, you can just shake it off. Oh, oh. Oh. <laughs> You are looking for a three-dimensional God. Stop settling for thin Dave. Stop trying to prop it up with, with duct tape and, and used cardboard boxes. 
There is an all-encompassing story within which you live and move and have your being, whether you recognize it or not. But oh, the joy to understand the story that you're invited into. And if we refuse it, we're pushing back. If we refuse it, we're just, we're just scratching at it. We're seeking but never finding. We're numbing ourselves. And the truth is, it doesn't work. It makes us tired and more anxious. So he says, let me tell you about this three-dimensional God. He's been sustaining you since the beginning of time. Look to Jesus. You'll see this, the greatest expression of this, this creation sustaining God in the person of Jesus Christ who proved who he was by his life, death, many miracles, and his resurrection. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes to a church in a town called Colossae. And he gives them an idea of this three-dimensional God. He says, this is Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You want a 3D God? It is found in Jesus. Stop propping up these thin daves. Now, if you're new to church, <laughs> this is the first time you've heard any of this laid out. I maybe perhaps sound like Nietzsche's madman. Maybe I sound like Paul, the babbler, in verse 18. Asking you, if you sever yourself from God, what comes next? Just running after all the other isms and ideologies and gods that we've propped up that are, that are weathered and they are just not working. The fact is humanity has done its best through every ideology and philosophy to live severed off from God. And so there's a pandemic of inner frustration, just like the Stoics and the Epicureans had. As another famous philosopher once wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. For many our lives are so two-dimensional because we become like the objects we worship. We think, why don't I feel like I have purpose and meaning? Well, we, we become like the ideologies and the isms and the gods that we prop up. We become like the things that we pursue. For many, we might even say, you know, I've, I've been pursuing unknown two-dimensional gods for so long. How and where do I even start to live a three-dimensional life in a three-dimensional story held up by a three-dimensional God. Well, Paul speaks to those who, who once felt the same way. How in the world do I get into this story? I feel so far away. And in that same, the end of that text I just read from Colossians, he says this. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation complete. We become like the gods we worship. We become two-dimensional because the isms and the ideologies are two-dimensional. Talk about a three-dimensional God. 
Everyone who looked at Jesus thought he was just two-dimensional, and then he burst out of the grave on the third day. Whoa, there's more going on here. So the question for us this morning is not, will you worship? It's, who will you worship? It's, who have you been worshiping? Where have you been camping? What have you been camping your life on? We're all worshipers. We are, we're animated by our ideologies and our fears and our anxieties. And we can find comfort in Jesus. And so for some of us this morning, we've, we said a long time ago, our, my allegiance belongs to Jesus. But if, if Paul was to come in and, and all the things that our mind is obsessed with and all the things we spent our time with were all set up as pictures and set out, he would say, I want to tell you about <laughs> the God that you say you follow. Because it appears you're following an unknown God. But he has made himself known through his compassion, through his life, death, and resurrection. He has shown his love and his power to sustain all things. And there may be some of us here this morning who are like, yeah, this is, this is so true. I've been running on all these different treadmills trying to get to, to the end. And it's just, I'm not moving. I feel in my relationships, in my, in my work, in my addictions, I just can't find an end and so I offer to you this morning a much larger story within which you can place your story. Uh, a much larger story within which you can place your identity. You can camp on this. How do we know? Because Jesus came back from the dead. Because Jesus will return again. This is a story we visit here week after week after week. Because the minute you step out of these walls, the world is going to give you a different kind of liturgy. And we've seen where that leads. We've seen the anxiety it causes, the anger and the fear. This story is something new, something eternal, something beautiful. And it's something we practice every week or, or every month at this church through communion. Maybe that was prophetic. Maybe we should be doing it every week. Now I feel bad. But we're doing it every month. <laughs> we do communion together. And we're going we're gonna to do that now. To step into communion together. And again, some of you maybe are visiting, so we'll just explain a bit. Communion is something that those who have given their lives to Jesus said, I, I want to align my life to, to the story that, that Jesus has called me to, that God has called me to through his son Jesus. When we take communion together, we remember the larger story that we live our lives in. And in that story is where we find an answer to our anxieties, an answer to our fear, an answer to the questions, where is all of this going? An answer to a question, where can I find some solid ground to stand on? This is how Christians for two millennia have anchored themselves in the larger story, one that cannot be reached simply through reason, but it's given to us through God's revelation of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a story that is solidly built on the life, death, and resurrection and return of Jesus. Jesus, on the night that he was going to be taken and he was going to be crucified, he had a meal with his friends. This, this story was passed on to the apostle Paul and he wrote about it in a letter that he wrote to an early church. And he said this, he said, for I received from the Lord, from Jesus, what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance 
of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. This is a three-dimensional meal. We take two very simple objects and we place uh, a larger, deeper, spiritual, eternal meaning on them. It's what we call a sacrament. It means that it is a moment that is set apart to be revered as an important practice of the church. And it means that if you are not a Christian this morning, these are just snacks to you. This means nothing, just some, no, some other weird Christian ritual going on. But if you uh, are a Christian, I would invite you, after I do some explaining, to come down and take the bread. The bread that represents the body of Christ freely given for you. No one took his life. He gave it freely, he told his followers. And then you will take the cup. And the cup represents the blood of Christ that was spilled as a payment for the sins of all who will accept it. Offer to all of humanity and on offer for you this morning as well. So if you're not a Christian, I would, I would just say that as, as other people are coming down, you would remain seated. You would reflect maybe on what you heard this morning. Or in the, in the moment as the, as the, the worship team is, is, is playing, you would just say, I want this. <laughs> I don't even know what this is yet, <laughs> but I want this. I want this solidity. I want this larger story. I want this, the forgiveness of sins and the freedom, the being made right with God. I want that. I understand that I'm seen and known and loved and I want to love you back with my life. If that's you, then during the, the worship, you might want to say that simple prayer to God and then come down and take part in communion. So this is how we do uh, communion here at Town Center. I'm going to have the, the servers come forward. And when the worship team starts playing, you don't have to rush right down. You can spend some time in worship. And then we'll make our way down these two um, sidewalkways, the stairs here. You can take the bread and take the cup. And then over here, you'll turn to your left, and there's stairs that make your way back up. Over there, there's stairs that make their way back up. And then you can sit down with your bread and your cup. And once we've all sat down together, with the bread and cup. You know, there's a few things that are called the body in Scripture, the actual body of Christ. The body, the bread, and the body, the church. And so as the body of Christ, we will consume the body of Christ together, reminding ourselves of the sustenance that we need as we, as we await the return of our King. So let's worship, and when you're ready, you can come down and take them back to your seats, and then we'll eat and drink together. Also mention, we do have... Gluten-free, if you need gluten-free over here, Mark's holding that as well. Jesus, we thank you for a love that would not, <laughs> that was willing to go all the way. You didn't tithe your blood. You gave fully till your death. With an eye on saving us and bringing us into relationship with you, we drink this cup in remembrance until you return. Let's drink together. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Guys, as we close the service off this morning, I do want to invite you, if you'd like to, to talk to me or you'd like to um, talk to our, our prayer team, will be over here. Um, if you want to have more questions about our church, I'd love to, love to talk to you about that, more about what I was talking about this morning. Love to talk to you. Um, other than that, as we, as we end in here, that's not the end of church. Church is not uh, a place with four walls. It's the community that you are very welcome to. So after the service, head out into the foyer, grab some coffee, some cool treats, and, and hang out, get to know each other together. I'm going to invite you to stand. Church, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And may he give you his eternal peace. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.